The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations with which they work. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. It's just Dave, Jack, and Jeb again this week in the virtual hangar. Jeb's gradually getting settled into his new home, Jack's looking for the hills, and Dave's gotten into the hard stuff. We talk about flying in Florida's unique airspace, once again try to figure out what we think about ADSB, and respond to some listener mail. All this and more in Uncontrolled Airspace, episode number 51, Bun Burger Bun. So, uh, let's see now. So we're all set, right? I'm, I'm actually, yeah, I've got my feet up. I got my scotch. Uh, I got the podcast page, the fodder page. Uh, only thing's missing is uh, is the uh, three, two, one. We're live. Okay, Dave. <laughs> Dave, what? How much scotch have you had this evening? <laughs> Only about a sip, sir. Okay. Well, let's see if we can get this thing back on track. By on the uh, other hand, uh, the uh, Adahars have been uh, realigned, so that's important. That is. Important. It is important. It's of vital importance. That is important. Welcome and the to vote, King. <laughs> okay. You're never going to get a, a straight, you know, five seconds to start. Jack. I know. Just, I know. Yeah, I, well, just you know. dive in. Dive right in, huh? Do okay. it. Welcome, folks, to episode number 51 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode on Wednesday evening, October 17th. Area 51. I didn't make that connection until just this second. This could there be, must the, be 50. There must be 51 ways to do your podcast. Uh, there you go. Okay. Oh, so we're going to give all the different 51s we can possibly well, think of. Actually, it was 50. We should have done it last Yeah. Week. Isn't 51 a catch-up number, too? 57. 57. Okay, well, we've got a little ways to go before we get to the ketchup episode, but uh, welcome, everyone. Okay, this is not starting well. We're going to barge on through, though. We're just going to keep going here. You know, sometimes you just got to, like, continue the approach even. You get it under control. and We're professionals. We have to get the job done. Keep going. We're recording this episode. Oh, I said that already. Wednesday, October 17th. I'm just going to say hi to the other people here in the virtual hangar, and we're going to see if we can make this thing work one way or the other. Uh, Also, uh, Wednesday tonight is uh, Dave Higdon. Dave is an aviation photographer, a senior editor for Kit Planes Magazine, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. And he's talking to us from the air capital of the world, Wichita, Kansas. <laughs> club, and, club, everybody. That's right. Uh, and he's you, in. Go ahead, Dave. If you've been, fly, if you've been flying in the uh, in the southeast Kansas, uh, uh, well, anywhere in Kansas, the last three or four days, you've been getting some IFR time and probably pre-flighting in a rubber suit. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, it's wet over there, huh? It's wet. It's wet. I had to wait on the regular ferry to come to get me to the office. <laughs> yeah, and the office is just across your backyard. 35 feet, yeah. yeah exactly, exactly. But you're you're sort of coping this evening by uh, sitting there uh, talking with us and enjoying some uh, fine alcoholic beverage, right? What are you what are you drinking tonight? Sounds great. Uh, it, one of the one of the best things to ever come out of Scotland after mini skirts. Uh uh it's called scotch. <laughs> yeah. So and what's and what's the the particular brand or uh, well this this is a this is a nice robust teenager fifteen years old uh, from Hague and Hague called Pinch <laughs> and it comes in a triangular dimpled bottle so it's, okay, it, it's nickname right. is the dimple the dimple uh huh now that the would be dimple. that would be a, a a single malt scotch 
No, actually, it's a blend, and it's one of only two or three blends that, uh, in my to my tongue, actually compete with some good single malts. One of the best one of the best weddings I ever went to uh, was uh, one where the father of the bride was a great Scotsman, and uh, and during a couple of the dinners and various social gatherings, uh, he was uh, he was treating us to Scotch, uh, good Scotch. Great Did he wear a kilt to the wedding? No, he didn't. But uh, he had the he, he had the whole accent, and he was just he was a he is a great guy. I don't I don't see him much because they're out on the west coast. But uh, but I mean the wedding was wonderful. But that was sort of secondarily a, an, an awesome part of it there was drinking scotch <laughs> with uh, with the bride's uh, dad and the bride and the groom and a whole bunch of other people. We ran up quite a bar tab. It was a lot of fun. Also here this evening in the virtual hangar is uh, Jeb Burnside. Jeb is an aviation journalist currently serving as editor in chief. Of Aviation Safety Magazine, and also as a contributing editor to Avweb Biz, and he's talking to us from the spring training home of the Cincinnati Reds, Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Jack. Hey, Dave. How's everybody doing tonight? Doing good. Doing good. Doing good. 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 You you notice the Reds aren't in the playoffs, so well, so much for Sarasota. Anyways, so how you doing down in Sarasota? This is what I want to know. I'm sorry, I'm going to change the subject here. Uh, So you've been down there at your new home in Sarasota for what a month month or two now, right? Month and a half. Month and a half. What do you think? what do you think? So far, so good. You like um, it down there? Yeah. The weather the last couple of days has been a little off. Uh, had some high overcast and maybe a threat of a shower or so and a little bit higher humidity. But the previous two weeks were basically 85, no humidity, clear blue skies, maybe some white puffies, and you know maybe a 10 or 12 knot breeze. The whole way through it was delightful mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh you know you you go outside and you know you know you don't work up a sweat or anything like that it's it's just been um you know basically what i paid for um so uh no complaints whatsoever we're just in i don't know you know what kind of a system we're dealing with here i haven't really looked i'm not flying uh, i have no plans to be flying anytime in the near real near future um so i really haven't paid m- that much attention to the overall weather picture um, I probably should just to get a handle on it. But other than that, and, and this stuff will blow out by the by the weekend. So uh, no, I'm uh, everything's fine. I'm still you know kind of living out of boxes, still not quite you know moved in kind of thing. And and part of that is because I'm I'm renting right now. I know that you know probably I'll be buying a house later next in the spring or early summer, and I just don't have the the willpower to unpack and then have to pack all this stuff again. So, sure, sure. Uh, there's a lot of cardboard still in the house, and that's okay. Yeah. And, and no, nobody here but us chickens. I was playing around with Google Earth the other day, which is kind of fun. Yeah, and it is uh, fun. I was using that part of the country sort of as my example. I was exploring the whole, you know, Tampa Bay, Sarasota, Bradenton, down to Venice, up to Orlando mm-hmm. area. And, uh, of course, passing through Lakeland, which is another area that's, uh, that's close sure. to our hearts. And, you know, so... And Google Earth has one feature where, you know, I mean, you can kind of like zoom around up and down and you can actually see the, the, the hills. You can see the, the terrain, all right? Uh-huh. And Google Earth has a mode where you can actually exaggerate the height of the hills by like a factor of three. So hills look much more, you know, distinct than they do in real life, all right? right. Even with 3X mode turned on in Google Earth, Florida <laughs> is dead flat. 
<laughs> That's right. That's exactly you right. Know, you know, do you know how high the highest point in Florida is? Well, it's like it, two, it's like two hundred feet. Yeah, I found one hundred and eighteen feet. I think. No, no, I think I found one hundred and fifty up in the Lakeland area, but uh, but that was the highest I found, and I was kind of zooming all over uh, Florida. Up in the where? Try uh, the Lakeland area. Not in the not the Lakeland area. Well, yeah. I was thinking like Gainesville area. I don't yeah, know. maybe Gainesville. Well, it may be even higher there. I'm just in that area. I was just sort of looking at the elevations. So and I think Lakeland's like forty some odd feet above sea level. But of course, not well, having natural terrain, it has some aviation terrain. It has a big honk and class Bravo in the middle of the state, right? Is yeah, that? Yeah, there's there's the Orlando Bravo, and then there's, there's Miami, the and then there's, there's a also Tampa, Tampa Bravo, Tampa St. Pete. Is how much yeah. of a challenge has that become for a VFR pilot flying around down there? I don't know. Is the quick it's answer. not as bad as it's not as bad as the DC area. Well, no, okay. uh, no nothing's uh, as bad as the DC area. The the only it's issues not as bad I've as had, the New York area. Yeah, the only issues I've really had um, getting dealing with the Tampa Bravo has been. Uh, I was coming down from Atlanta uh, a couple of weeks ago after NBAA, and basically, is they took me coming out of Atlanta. Took me right over Hartsfield at like um, seven, eight thousand feet. Gave me a climb to my uh, requested altitude of eleven thousand. Said, "You want direct Sarasota?" I said, "Sure." I said, "Clear direct Sarasota." So zoom, I go off, and uh, of course that took me out a little bit over the water, uh, over the Gulf, um, which you know at eleven thousand feet I could care less. I still had land inside, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then they wanted to drop me down to five thousand. Um, as I started getting into the Tampa area, and I said, you know, guys, I really don't want to do that. I'm out here over the water, you know, uh, I don't want to be at 5,000 feet because I've only got one, uh, one set of pistons banging away here. And they said, okay, fine. And, uh, I just basically, basically went in on the, uh, the west side of the Bravo and, and shot right into Sarasota. But, um, um, that's really the only trick is at that particular point in time, also Tampa had what they call a push or what they consider a push. Uh, they don't know pushes, uh, <laughs> if they haven't been to the DC area, but, um, um, they got a, they were getting a little hinky, but it wasn't any big deal. And, uh, I was IFR of course, and, and just went, you know, sliced off a little corner of the Bravo and slid right on into Sarasota. But, uh, the 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 controllers in the in the uh, the Tampa Bravo the Tampa uh, Tracon um, are seem to be pretty good. They they certainly know the airspace. They certainly know their game. They know how to move traffic, and uh, they're not uh, uh, not afraid of dealing with flibs. So uh, no, no, uh, I, don't, I, I don't have any complaints at all. Had had, had several <clears throat> experiences with them over the years, and uh, uh, I think the only time we had a discussion with Tampa was when I was going into uh, Sarasota to pick up a life raft. I mean, and that was the only reason we were going into Sarasota. Was that's where the, the, the life raft that we were renting was, was was waiting on us. And therein lies a tale that we'll come back to later That's on. That's where the life raft was based. Now, now wait a second, though. Who are you? Huh? I'm, who are you? Your name? Me? Oh, oh <laughs> thank you. I have it highlighted on my screen. I wasn't going to forget. I am... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a fl- freelance writer, a flea flea rants writer, and a new media producer here in Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you, Jeb. I appreciate it. That's very. I kind didn't of know you. we had any flea ranches up there. Well, we do now. We do now. I, uh, you know, I always had, when I was living out and flying on the West Coast, I always heard stories about the Florida 
airspace being really complex. But I have to admit that, you know, I, I grew up flying in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is uh, not only hemmed in by 3,000-foot mountain, I mean, no exaggeration, 3,000-foot peaks all around the Bay Area, plus a big Class Bravo and two Class Charlies within those mountains. Um, you know, it became very, and, and me being a VFR-only pilot, I mean, I didn't even have the luxury, if you will, of, uh, of letting uh, my, my uh, you know, my IFR plan cut corners. Um, you get it's very second nature once you learn the the you know the terrain so to speak um, it becomes very second nature just weave left sure. and right and you know what you I've got to stay to the this sure. left of this landmark and I've got to you know yeah. be below this altitude by this point and uh, it, it's it actually you know is pretty painless once you you know have internalized all these different 3d landmarks and well uh, and what, you know one of the things that complicates Florida I mean you know you got the the Tampa and Orlando and Miami Bravos. And the Tampa and Orlando Bravos have a little space be- between them, mm-hmm. you know, comfortable. Not a lot of space, but more than enough to, to accommodate VFR traffic without, you know, being on flight following, going through the either Bravo. But you get just south of where those Bravos come closest together. And you got a big honking MOA down there. And you get down around Sebring and north of Sebring, there's a MOA down there where they, they, they shoot things live. Yeah. yeah, and and uh, you you got to pay attention. Uh, I mean, really, just like everywhere. But the fact that Florida is flat, and unless you're scud running, the only op, you know you you don't have any obstacles except towers. Uh, Although if you go down further south, water. you get down what is it into the Keys, and there's a wire that extends a couple miles up into the into the sky, right? Well, there's another one up at there was there's another one up at uh, uh, Cedar Key. Uh-huh. These yeah, are, up, for people up. not familiar, these are uh, um, like basically observation balloons that are tethered to the ground by a cable that's, I don't know, very, very high. and uh, they're, they're charted, and, and they're prohibited areas. Yeah. but And they are, uh, uh, you know, they are well, not. What they are, what they are, they're are called aerostats. Yeah. 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 And what they're, the one at, at uh, Key West, it's just... Uh, um, east northeast of, of Key West International, and then the one at Cedar Key. Um, I don't know exactly its location, but both of them are hoisting aloft radar antennas. Yeah. Um, to look for uh, low flying aircraft trying to uh, come into the states for and they all sorts can't of go nefarious way reasons. Way the hell up there! They can go way the hell up there. Fort fourteen five is the uh, tether length on the one at Key West, and it's been about a year, I guess, now, um, a guy clipped that sucker. That's what I was going to uh, say, yeah. At night in a 182, and, uh, of course, he and his passengers uh, did not live to tell the tale. Yeah. Um, but they didn't they, sever the cable, right? The cable? They didn't the sever the cable, cable but they, they damaged it. Um, they lost the, the, the station, uh, lost telemetry to the... Uh, to whatever the hell they were hoisting, mm-hmm. um, whether it was the radar antenna or some other instrument, um, they lost telemetry and reeled it in, and there was a nice big gouge on the like you know uh, seven thousand four hundred seventy nine foot mark or something like that, and uh, um, you know that was in, that was the end of that story. Yeah. Um, well, the first, my, <laughs> the, the, the big thing about Florida though. Um, is the yeah? There's some bravos, uh, and there's some some restricted airspace, especially um, southwest of, of the Jacksonville area. But the big thing about Florida is its shape, um, and you're, basically That's you're right. funneling 
all of this traffic, and there's a substantial amount of it uh, going north and south, but you're funneling it all into a fairly narrow corridor, uh, irrespective of what the Bravos do. That's and right. uh, you've got uh, in the in Jacksonville Center, uh, and I've ne- I've yet to figure out the zen of all this and and how it all works <laughs> and how it's all supposed to work. But you can you know motor down from you know the, the New York or Washington areas and just be sitting there you know for hours you know not paying a whole lot of attention. You talk, start talking to Jack Center, and they'll want you at a different altitude and they'll say, well, you need to be at such and such an altitude for direction of flight. And you say, wait a minute. I've been flying at the same altitude since I left East Jabip, you know, uh, Overshoe County, uh, New Hampshire. And uh, what do you mean, you know, i got to be at a different altitude for direction of flight? I'm flying the same direction I've been for the last four hours. But yeah. they still want you, they want, because of the, some North Florida uh, uh, letter of agreement, I guess, they have between facilities, they want you at a different altitude for your direction of flight. And I, I've yet to figure that one out. It's not in the aim anywhere. Uh, and, and I've just really never raised the issue formally to get a formal answer out of anybody. But that's that, to me, is the biggest frustration because uh, I'm lazy and I don't like to change altitude or heading if I don't have to. Yeah. Okay. So I confess. Right. I confess. All right. Well, speaking of... Uh Speaking of the Zen of flying, or, uh, or uh, maybe we could subtitle this "What Goes Around Comes Around." We've been talking over the last couple of weeks about, or more than weeks, but uh, about the shortcomings of uh, Lockmart's uh, flight service station operation, Ooh. and uh, and it's actually worked in our favor here. This is a, this is an interesting story. All right, this is a, um, quoting here from a story in avweb.com. Uh, the FAA says it will likely clear the records of 12 pilots who were viol- who violated a temporary flight restriction near Camp David, of course the president's retreat, um, last weekend on their way to an antique fly-in at Hagerstown. Um, these guys busted the restricted area, or whatever the specific you know uh, uh, name of the of the area was. Um, they were cited for it, but now they're going to apparently get forgiven because Lockmart didn't. Tell them about it in the briefing. And uh, wow, that's a new one. Isn't that cool? Huh? That is and, very, and, and, very cool. Here's the here's the capper though. Why didn't flight service tell them about the 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 TFR? Because flight service lost the freaking NOTAM. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, this wasn't. It was hanging in front of the guy, and he was just negligent. The system failed, and they lost the bloody NOTAM. So did none of the flight service stations have it, or just this one particular one didn't have it? I can't answer that, but this one particular can't one answer that was either. apparently the one that was distributing it. You know, there was it was the one to whom the or to which the notice was filed, because you don't file NOTAMs generally on a you know to a national entity. You file them to the to the uh, well, uh, area I, where they're going to be I'll in disagree. effect. I'll disagree with you on that because um, all of the um, um, the security related notams establishing temporary you're flight right, restrictions right, right. are FDC notams, mm-hmm. flight data center notams, which are nationally yeah nationally disseminated. Um, it, it Lockheed Martin, I mean, I'm sorry, not Lockheed, but Leesburg, Virginia, which is the uh, one of the hub flight service stations established by Lockheed Martin and, of course, the one serving um, uh, Virginia, D.C., and Maryland also, um, generally is pretty good about this stuff. 
uh, and you know, for that matter, Leesburg and uh, Hagerstown are you know thirty minutes by car away from each other. So you 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 understand how close they are by airplane. Um, there's no there's no explanation for this. I would guess that the pilots involved probably were talking to Leesburg or a nearby flight service station. I, I can't imagine, you know, of course, you know, what Lockheed Martin's been doing. Uh, they could be talking to San Diego or for hell, you know, Mexico City for all I know. Um, uh, Interestingly, uh, it was a member of Congress that brought this up. Well, in, yeah, it was Jerry Costello of, of yeah. uh, Illinois, chairman of the House Aviation Subcommittee. Um, and um, I, I'd really like to know a little bit more information about why he's on this like he is, because um, that's unusual for Jerry Costello. He's kind of the congressman from United Airlines, um, as opposed to uh, whatever district he represents. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but he, he's right. He says we can't, we can and do, and we, 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 he says we can and must do better, and he's absolutely right. But absolutely. he's kind of late to the game too. Yeah. This is something that's been yeah. going on for a while. Well, maybe, I don't know. Now you think the uh, the executive branch is going to take uh, the complaints about Lockmart a little more seriously now that, uh, that, that one of their precious, t- I don't mean to make light of this, but, but one, a TFR had been, uh, been, been neglected like this? I mean, there are those who would say this is a serious national security issue. You know, to continue on the thread of this topic, uh, I'm, I'm not sure how seriously they're taking it because right now they're moving ahead with the talks of criminalizing TFR violations. Uh, we've had no... Where do you, where do you, you see know, that? Is that, on, is that on the list? I don't think it's on the list. Dave it's, just, not on the, it's not on the list. He's, he's telling us something list. we didn't know. What a concept. Uh, <laughs> What's the story, Dave? I feel like I'm a listener. I saw, saw it on one of my web sources this week uh-huh. uh, that the, uh, the the feelers have been put out, and uh, the, the, some of the uh, some of the organizations that you'd expect are, are, are pushing back, saying you don't want to go there. Uh, but uh, there's rumblings about uh, writing regulations that would criminalize TFR violations. And I think part of it is a frustration on the people on the DHS, TSA side and the Secret Service and all that having, you know, what admittedly what's been too many busts occur, but which is admittedly um, sometimes a moving target in terms of exactly where and when these TFRs are in effect and slowness before, literally and after the transition uh-huh. of, 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 uh, of uh, flight service to be able to keep up with the changes and distribute them and the fact that pilots are held liable for a TFR bust even if they've got a briefing on the TFR and then it changes and creates the bust after they've departed. Right. Uh, well, it's a sucky and, and- idea all the way around. And you, you mentioned at the, at the top of that little rant um, how it's a moving target. Sometimes it's literally a moving target. Yes, exactly. Because, That's... because they have literally had these roving or, or uh, uh, mobile TFRs moving, you know, from one location, such and such a lat long, down. Moves with the helicopter, it moves with yeah, the limo. Down, down interstate, whatever, to such and such another lat long. And I just wonder at the stupidity of the people who approve these these TFRs and and put these notums out. Um, why don't we just give them the GPS 
coordinates directly and the time and the altitude also so that uh, whoever would want to do something could actually just plug it all in digitally and not have to translate the lat long. But, yeah, well. but, but I digress. What, now, do, is there any data on on? It would seem from what I've read, and this is totally just from reading the public news. But most TFR busts and most of these restricted airspace busts are very innocent. They're just mistakes. They're just, I mean, that's right. That's right. It, it, I don't. Is there any data that indicates that many of them are callous disregard? Uh, I back to, um, I a year or so ago. There was a, if you'll recall, there was a notice of proposed rulemaking involving the Washington Aidas excuse me, and the, um, the fly-restricted zone. And um, at that time, um, the uh, trade associations were pointing out that of the, and I'm going to, I know it's a five-digit number, I want to say like 12,000, 13,000 various violations of any sort, and this includes um, grazing it with a wingtip, this includes squawking 1200 inside the Adas. This includes the, the more blatant, uh, the two guys who, who made national news and probably national history a couple of three years ago by boring straight into the Adas uh, from Pennsylvania and not getting turned around until almost the last possible moment. Yeah, um, they, were not, almost, not, they were almost uh, scrapped. Yeah, they could have landed almost on the on the National Mall and, and were very, very close to becoming uh, uh, um, uh, cannon fodder. But um, not a single one of these violations, and I have to put the word violations in quotes when I say this, not a single one of them has ever been attributed to being, some, uh, being part of some terrorist scheme. These have all been in, inadvertent, uh, they've all been mistakes There's a by word pilots. For this. Innocent it's, mistakes. Thank you, thank you. And um, not a single. Th- th- this is something that certainly does not deserve criminalization. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think this, this is this is like busting a speed limit. This is like uh, the the, the, the motor, motoring the equivalent. Limit. Yeah, motor, or aeronautical equivalent of of doing fifty in a thirty mile an hour work zone or something. Yeah, and then sending uh, you to jail for it. Yeah, then yeah. getting locked up for the privilege. I mean, I don't think I, I'm not suggesting that there shouldn't be some consequences for you know because although these there already are consequences. yeah exactly there already are exactly I just think criminalizing we're going to make it a crime to be stupid or foolish or careless. You know? Moving on here, let's see. Uh, Moving right along, David. There's apparently been uh, you're telling us there's been some uh, developments in the ADSB saga. Uh, and, yeah, and, the, then you, uh, and then you didn't give us a link to read the story, you so you're, you're on your own here, pal. What's going on? Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, Aviation Rulemaking Committee, yeah, which is a, uh, a community slash industry slash government body that advises the FAA on rules that it needs to make and on the rules that it's working on, um, told the FAA this p- past week that uh, it believed – that uh, there needed to be in the, in the proposal to move to an ADSB-based air traffic control system that we talked about previously. Yeah. There needed to be financial incentives to encourage operators, pilot owners, airlines, and so <laughs> forth. You, you know what the financial incentive is, don't you? Yeah. That the, the FAA is going to come up with the financial incentive is you don't get to fly your airplane unless you put ADSB on it. Well, that's kind of the way it's structured right now. 
that's, uh, that's my point. Yeah. But, but uh, that's 2020. Are you suggesting that they're going to offer us money if we do it sooner? No. Uh, I think the idea uh, is to get some creative thinking. Well, there's your problem going. right there. <laughs> get some creative thinking going about how you could provide such financial incentives. Uh, and they also, yeah, we, we need to move past just the money thing. We also need to mention that they also believe that there needs to be some uh, accelerated operational benefits. Um, both of these, this, you know, both of these carrots, if you will, uh, as ways to encourage people to move to ADSB, because as Jeb pointed out today and previously, two points. One, you know, one of the incentives is you can't get into certain airspace without the equipment, uh, which means that they could have a, a lot of concentration of traffic a lot around a lot of Class B airspace uh, that they don't want with airplanes that don't have ADSB because it's not required. You know, the, the real way to make this work is for it to be national, not just for these bits of airspace that they're talking about. Well, isn't the way to... The second thing is that, uh, you know... It, People need to see a benefit that uh, isn't covered by existing equipment that a lot of people, not all people, but a lot of people already have. Right. That's right. That's the incentive is it's going to be a good system. It's going to be good. It's going to make it safer and easier and more fun. I mean, you know, we all fell over ourselves, fell over each other trying to add moving map GPSs to our flight bags when it was totally not required. Right. And and because, isn't because, don't they have confidence in ADSB's good basic see, goodness and functionality? This, that this is where I have to agree with Jeb's criticism that to a certain extent there's nothing new available from ADSB that pilots can't already get other ways. Uh, you know the people that have, uh, have have jumped over to putting moving map display GPSs or you know MFDs that will take a feed from a, uh, an IFR GPS. You know there's there's been a big rush in that direction, and I would bet that 80 percent of the people that are going to change over may have, have probably changed over. Yeah, and see this is to my point about the this technology is going to be is maybe even now, but will certainly be obsolete long before they require us all to have it. And uh, it's crazy. Well, you, you, you need you need that kind of display to have ADSB in. The in being you take you, you receive process and show what other ADSB airplanes are sending out. The NPRM doesn't require you to ever put ADSB in. They only sure. require you to put ADSB out, which tells them and ADSB in equipped airplanes all the data well, that they want. It's kind of it, like as we said before, uh, the new mode C or the new mode S transponder. Well, here's 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 my punchline in all this is all of this is being designed and engineered and promulgated and deadlined to make the FAA's job easier. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's none of this, none of this at the current level of, of regulation, none of this at the current level of proposal is actually going to make my job as the pilot any exactly. easier. I've already got all this equipment. And, that, and I think that's I've what the ARC all, all these capabilities. I think um, that's why the ARC is coming, you know, coming and, and more with power this perspective. to it. But my point, my point is, is, is really this: is when it gets down to cost-benefit analyses, there's very little benefit 
to me uh, to having to go to my avionics shop and say, you know, rip this out, rip that out, install this other brand new black box that's really kind of untested and right now is really only available from one manufacturer um, so that um, I can give, I can spend all this money and I can give all of these benefits to the FAA for my having spent this money. Yeah, but, but Dave says they're going to like incentivize us. So well, I, here, I'm, I'm going to buy a used one on eBay and they're going to give me a check, Dave's, right? Dave says the ARC wants the FAA to incentivize this. That doesn't mean it's going to happen. Here's what the ARC said. Now, this is from Aviation International News' uh, uh, newsletter. They do their own uh, little thing, uh, AIN online, uh, and they do it as, it as it's needed rather than you know once a week or daily. It, it can be several times a week. Anyway, they note that the uh, Aviation Rulemaking Committee's recently released report on ADSB development says the FAA must implement, quote, some combination of financial incentives and operational benefits to significantly accelerate ADSB equipage, close quote, before 2020. That's the compliance date of the proposed rule. Right. Uh, ARC says it has confidence in the FAA's ability to deploy the ADSB ground infrastructure. And I agree. That's really the simple part of it. It's, you know, bun, burger, bun. You get the ground station approved. You build a bunch of them. You put them in the right spot. They're like radio stations. They're not site sensitive or anything like that. But they they specifically identified three key initiatives that they thought needed to be done out of 12 recommendations. First, collaborate with the aviation industry and aggressively develop an appropriate combination of financial incentives and accelerated operational benefits. Two, accelerate and prioritize the identification of operations enabled by ADSB with the approval of reduced separation standards for initial operations with a high level of user benefit by 2012. That is saying, make it useful for us, make it more beneficial to us to have this than to not have us in all the airspace. And third, establish certification requirements for aircraft displays for ADSBN applications by 2010. Now that's only two and a half, you know two years three months away, uh, but I think the ARC kind of hit it on the head here. They've got our interests at heart in saying that we need to see something more than the benefits that you're going to get for us to shell out the money to give you those benefits. So yeah. how about some benefits that flow the other way? I mean, that's been one of the complaints about the uh, NPRM that was issued. They haven't figured out yet how they could use ADSB to do things like increase airways capacity and IFR capacity well, with reduced separation, yet they're saying it's going to be mandated by this certain time. That's the punchline, though, Dave, is they can't. Uh, well, let me say, can't is a strong word. There is very little, very little elasticity in the airspace, and there's very little uh, bang for the buck in the airspace. Well, no, that's not even right. The elasticity exists. There's a great deal of elasticity, but th there's very little bang for the buck uh, in, in trying to, to squeeze more airplanes into the same airspace. We've got RVSM now. The airspace is not that crowded. The problem with congestion 
is in terminal areas at certain times of day. And no specifically, arg- no, 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 I'm, I know you know this, Dave, but I, I'm, this is kind of for our audience and for the record. The problem with congestion, and I, I have to put that word in quotes also, is trying to squeeze 70 airplanes onto a runway that, is only accept, that only can accept 60 in well, an hour. I, and, I, think, and, I think we're missing one point here, though, is yeah. that there are benefits available in the en route system. Yes, um, I, I, separations fully, that, I fully acknowledge. That needs to be exploited here because, uh-huh. you know, if you can stop vectoring you and me around to maintain five-mile separation because you can get away with two-mile separation and we're going to pass three miles, you and I are going to have an easier eye off our flight somewhere. And that's going to reduce the workload on controllers. It's going to make things easier for the flights going. It's going to mean fewer diversions and less work on the computers. There's all sorts of potential benefits in being able to reduce these separations. Uh, Admittedly, it's not going to do a damn thing for airport congestion. That's got to be dealt with separately. The, right. You know, no amount of technology is going to erase the fact that if you get too many airplanes too close together, somebody's going to encounter wake turbulence and wind up where they don't want to be. This whole ADSB thing. I mean, I, I, uh, I I've got uh, um, uh, a lot of questions, and uh, I see a great bang for the buck for the FAA. They get to do. They get to do away with some some ground based nav aids. They get to do away with some some they terrestrial some ground ground based radar stations. Yeah, and uh, at the end of the day, you know they're spending a lot less money. Where you and I and and uh, everybody we know who happens to fly an airplane is spending more money, and we're not seeing that much in the way of benefits from it. Is my only point. So yeah, no, I will I will you. I'm coming around more and more to your perspective. That's why this thing with the Aviation Rulemaking Committee Uh jumped out at me so much, is that here's a body made up of a lot of industry and community partners that's saying there has to be more in this than benefits strictly to the FAA. Uh, Or at least tell us how those benefits to the FAA are going to trickle down to us and save us money and improve our lives. Uh-huh. And, and and I think it's appropriately timed because we've got this debate in Congress right now over reauthorizing the FAA and how to pay for the system and, and airport improvements and all that stuff. You know, we're, the user fees that the ATA and the FAA propose versus continuing excise taxes. And the GA community has pretty much reached a consensus that they're willing to eat higher excise taxes to fund – the implementation, you know, equipment, investment, uh, installation, all of that for a next generation air traffic system. But I think, you know, be, part of the, the lines of this is somebody saying when that's done and paid for, then those savings should come back to the, the aviation community well, through some kind of reduction in taxes. I don't, I, yeah. Man, I don't disagree with you. I would like for um, that to happen, but um, and and you were there too, Dave, back in the early '80s, when uh, um, Jay Lynn Helms basically uh, 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 had had the industry uh, by the short hairs and said, you know, look, guys, we need to build this this new uh, uh, wham bam, thank you, ma'am. Uh, 
uh, air traffic control system. We're going to update all this stuff. We got this host computer deal coming on. We got this. Oh, yeah. uh, we got this microwave landing system that's going to uh, uh, bring you in on curved approaches and do your popcorn all at the same time. Yeah. And it all fell flat on its face. They 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 forced the the industry to buy into higher taxes to fund all of this. And yep. the next freaking year pulled the rug out from under them by Absolutely. saying, "Oh." Oh, we're gonna we're gonna keep the taxes in place, but we're not gonna spend this money. We're gonna put it towards deficit reduction. That's and right. That, that I, was Ron Reagan. I'm sorry. That was I'm, uh, that was Liddy Dole and, and, and DOT. And I remember Ronald it well. Yep. Uh, I was at AOPA when they were signing right. on to the higher taxes. I was, uh-huh. you know, I was just leaving AOPA when the rug got pulled out from under them, uh-huh. and everybody got a bloody nose. Uh, I think there's. Yep. There, there's a lot of similarities in, in, in the, the need for concerns. I think the biggest difference here, though, is the reality that we've had ADSB functioning in the Ohio River Valley and in Alaska for seven years now. Hands-on operational experience, uh, you know, a great deal of, of operational knowledge about the benefits, the limitations, uh, the potential. Uh, we already have companies building approved ADSB transceivers that can be installed. Now, admittedly, you know, five grand or six grand isn't cheap, but if you already have a, a multifunction display and a GPS, that's really all you need to add to be able to play in the ADSB world. Right. Uh, I agree with you. That's a horrible example of how bad things can go and how far south they can go and how wrong they can be. Uh, I think in this instance, though, we've gotten the experience, the the test drive, if you will, and uh, some of the equipment on the market uh, and, and shown that even at limited numbers, it's a lot more reasonable than the numbers they were talking about for MLS receivers. And nobody built an MLS receiver small enough to put in a private airplane. Well, I, on that point, it was point, a nightmare. I, at, at every I will angle. disagree with you because I have flown a 172 that had an MLS receiver in it. Yeah. Really? You did. Yeah. You talked about this. You he talked about, about this, this last, like last episode or you something. You didn't even yeah. have that's beer right, last that's week. That's right. That's Dave. right. Gee whiz, man. See, that's that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> moving on here. Let's move on. Moving uh, right on. Moving on. Anyway, uh, anyway, uh, I you know we're not going to fix the ills of uh, of uh, all of this this week. Uh, I can tell you, however, that. Uh, uh, oh, this is going to go on for years. Yeah, this is going to go I, on for years. I, I at least and, and, do appreciate the ARC. Well, I coming, do too. Coming and, in and with I, the perspective that they've come in with, because uh, I think we'll hear more of that as some of the aviation alphabet groups start to publicize their comments to the NPRM. I don't think we've heard the last of this kind of suggestion that the NPRM needs to have some tweaks and changes and some incentives. You think? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, by the way, that was a good aviation term you threw in there, Dave. I'm gonna, that, Which one? Bun, burger, bun. I, I think. <laughs> that may be the title of this week's episode. We got uh, mail. We got uh, mail. Uh, we got mail? We got, we I, got some I, good- I, I still like the whole lot of plethora. 
<laughs> that was a good one. That was a good one. <laughs> uh, we, got, we, got a, we got some good mail this past week. Uh, we got one piece of mail. We invited uh, listeners to uh, send us in their open door and open window uh, experiences uh, on last week's episode. We did get one uh, from, uh, from our friend uh, Steve Tupper at the Airspeed podcast. He saw, sent us an interesting uh, account of an open door uh, situation he had in flight. And uh, um, I was, originally I was going to talk about that here tonight, but we're running so long. I think I'm going to save that until we maybe have a couple more and we'll do them all at the same sure. time. So, uh, But one piece of mail I did want to highlight tonight is from Rusty from Wadworth, Ohio. And Rusty writes, Hi guys, had to share the news with you that I just became a private pilot today. Yahoo! Right, Way to go, Rusty. There you go. He says, I've been listening to the podcast since the beginning of my training, so in some ways, I guess I'm a child of UCAP. He says, scary, oh, no, right? That's scary. That <laughs> is scary. And, and, and this close to Halloween, that deserves to be a horror movie. He goes on and says, uh, aside from introducing me to the love of my life, Liney's Oktoberfest, right? <laughs> he says, you guys... Oh, I thought we had a real story going here. He go. says, you guys reminded me that aviation is more than V-speeds and equations. He says, thanks for keeping aviation fun and keep up the good work. That's Rusty in Wadsworth, Ohio. Congratulations, Rusty. That's terrific. Yeah, and, uh, big time, Rusty. And, 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 uh, and big Rusty, time. when we sit down the first time, I'll have to introduce you to something that these guys in plaid kilts makes. If you like lionies, you'll love this. <laughs> so we're going to move on. We're going to do a beer podcast next, and then we'll do a scotch podcast after that. And, uh, <laughs> hey, I could, I could work with that. I could work with that. Sign me up. Yeah. What else is on our list here? Um, I'll probably forget to get online that day, though. There's a uh, there's a, a handful of stories uh, sort of revolving around Cessna over the last couple of weeks, um, and apparently I was having too much beer last week because we, we 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 touched on the uh, diesel Skyhawk, the uh, diesel powered uh, Cessna. Yes, we did. Last Actually, it week. was the diesel fumes that. Yeah, it must have been something lost. like that. Which, uh, yes. um, and so we've talked about that. But then also in Cessna news, um, Cessna has announced uh, that. Now, and well, now this story may actually go away based on on the third story I'm going to talk about. But let's talk about the second one. <laughs> Cessna announced that they were planning to put uh, ballistic shoots on all of their piston singles, which I think is kind of interesting development. I think yeah, I think they're going to offer it as an option. But now, I I, I made the connection. Um, that this was a result of the fact that they were planning on buying Columbia aircraft. All right. No. Um, and the other well, news is now that is that uh, is that uh, well because they were getting into that new high tech thing. You know, not that Columbia necessarily has shoots on their airplanes, but they were sort of getting into that whole field. But then that's the other, maybe the biggest of the three stories is now apparently the the news last week was that Cessna was planning to buy Columbia. But now the news, and and part of that news was Cirrus saying, "Go for it, you know, good idea. We're glad to yeah, see, yep. you know." But now the news is that Cirrus is going to make an offer for Columbia. Well, uh, there, yeah, there's a little question about that because uh, uh, Alan Klapmeyer, coy boy that he can be, has uh, you know, kind of heavily hinted that. Uh, that uh, there's some interest on their part, and the uh, investment company that holds uh, the majority, of, uh, I believe the majority of Cirrus's stock, has actually filed papers in uh, in the bankruptcy court challenging some of the terms and conditions of the filing and some of the assumptions uh, that Columbia made and the letter of intent by Cessna that followed immediately afterward. And they're not alone. There have been two other entities 
file with the court objecting to the terms, wanting some changes. Uh, long and the short of it is that this is going to get a lot more interesting before it gets done. Now, is this because Columbia is such an incredibly attractive property, or is this to try and head off some sort of monopoly kind of thing with Cessna owning too much of the world, or what, what's this all about? You know, yes. That, 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 yeah, that's, that, that's one of those, pick your, pick your motive, and, and it's like pin the tail on the airplane, because uh-huh. uh, they all have validity. Uh, yeah. Without trying to read motive, motives into the you know the, the the people that are objecting to the and, and filing to change the terms and conditions, let's look just put if, it if, down at a common denominator is all of them think there's a chance to make some money here. Right, and and if you, if you know if you can pick up um, the Columbia uh, type certificates in their home built market. And um, all of that for, uh, you know, pennies on the dollar, uh, hey, sign me up. We might call it the Uncontrolled Airspace uh, Aircraft Manufacturing Company. That's right. We'll uh, park it on the ramp next to our uh, Boeing business right, jets. And, uh, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with this picture. Um, I wouldn't hesitate to, uh, uh, if I were in Cessna's position, if I were in Cirrus's position, uh, if I was, uh, you know, maybe in, in, in uh, Hawker Beechcraft's position. To, to think about stroking a check or two here. Um, it, 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 there's, there's a lot of, I don't want to say a lot of money to be made, but there's certainly a lot of opportunity to be found. Do you think, that, but, but is it only, only an existing company that would have the resources to make it work? Or, so why don't we all go out and try and convince Paul Allen to help us? Could we do it on our own, or is it, does it need the support of a big company? Well, a couple of these outfits, Philadelphia-based Versa Capital Management, Inc., according to the Wichita Eagle, New York-based Park Electrochemical Corp., Hmm. uh, in addition to Cirrus, Uh uh, have filed motions with the bankruptcy court in Portland, Oregon. Uh, What is their interest? Are they suppliers or something? They want to buy. I know, but why? They think they can make money. Okay, well, we should let them sit down with Raytheon and make sure they understand what they're getting themselves into. I don't know. It's a special industry, right? I mean, it's just not like anybody can run one of these businesses and make it work. You've got to take some special skills and some special passions. You can, and, you can, uh, hire, you can hire that. That's uh, right. Let me give you an example. Boeing Wichita uh, was the largest Boeing factory outside Puget Sound. Uh, employed about 12,000. Well, at its peak, it was up to about 14,000 people. A few years ago, Boeing sold it off to a Canadian-based investment group called Onyx. Onyx set it up as a private company, uh, took it public, called Spirit Aerosystems. Spirit Aerosystems now is, uh, you know, uh, about nine, ten thousand people here in Wichita. They build the entire fuselage for the 737. They build the cockpit and the nacelles and struts for everything else that Boeing makes. Uh, they're players now in business aviation. They're contractors to several other companies. Uh, Onyx wasn't an aviation expert company, but they assembled a team uh, based heavily on the Boeing Wichita management and bringing in some others uh, that's been quite successful. And uh, uh, then Onyx was part of another group that bought Raytheon Aircraft from Raytheon Inc., and created uh, what's now called Hawker Beechcraft, and by all indications, they're doing better now than they were when they were part of Raytheon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of it depends on the deal you get. 
because sometimes the deal you get makes it easier to make money under those circumstances than the circumstances that apply when it's held by a large holding company like Raytheon held. Okay. Uh, well, uh, Raytheon keep in it, mind, keep in mind that Chapter Eleven, uh, under which I presume Columbia is proceeding, allows the restructuring of any major debt. That's right. Um, and literally, um, Cessna or Cirrus or, or UncontrolledAirspace.com could pick up Columbia free of debt for not a whole lot of money. And that's not a bad deal in anybody's book. Well, and to, to Cessna's credit, uh, the offer that they've made, uh, the letter of intent, which is not uh, binding, it appears, uh, does include uh, the offer to assume some of the obligations of, uh, of uh, Columbia Aircraft, uh, and some of those obligations would include warranties for the existing fleet that's still under warranty, uh, and, and other aspects that may be useful to some of the unsecured creditors w- that also do business already with Cessna, mm-hmm. for them to say, you know, we're going to make you well. Uh, but the uh, you know this struck me from the very beginning the timing of the bankruptcy filing the timing of the uh, 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 letter of intent uh, the, the, the Cessna's intent to buy uh, and then the approval of debtor in possession financing all came so quick back to back to back that it was hard to believe that there hadn't been considerable consultation between. Columbia and Cessna, or Columbia and Textron, at least, uh, before this all rolled out and some things decided between them to begin with. Mm-hmm. So it's not a big surprise that, uh, that the conditions that Columbia proposed in their bankruptcy filing would uh, kind of tend to favor the suitor that's already helped them keep the doors open, Cessna Aircraft. Yeah. All right, well, then we'll have to break all our piggy banks and... Uh move forward with this. I'm saving my money for that A380 that we're getting. That's right. That's right. By the way, did you see that? So we talked about that last week. We, that That's right. They delivered the first one. Some, well, no, but I'm talking about we were reporting, someone reported, we talked about last week on the podcast that someone saw one on the ground near um, in Hartford, Connecticut, in near, Hartford, the, yeah. near the Ex- AOPA Expo, and we were wondering what it was all about, and uh, and then I actually did some research and discovered that there was one on the ground, and it was completely unrelated to the Expo. Um, as a matter of fact, we got email from a wait a minute maybe I can find it here we got email from a, from a listener who was explaining the whole thing to us here uh, oh really let's go yeah hang on I'm going to find it it's coming it's coming let's see here uh, uh, okay. all this is from uh, this is from uh, you know I, these folks have been great friends of Uncontrolled Airspace it's a website called uh, 30,000feet.com it's sort of a portal for aviation stuff and uh, and although I've known about them for some time, it's we've seen visitors coming to our site from them. Um, I I don't know who runs it or anything. And then out of the blue, uh, no pun intended, got email from them this past week. And it's a fairly long email. I put it on the website. We'll put a link in the show notes to it. Um, but basically, let's see if I can find the part that was about the. Uh, uh, Let's see now. I'm not actually all the way through episode 50 yet, but I did hear the part about the Airbus A380 at Bradley Field in Connecticut. That visit was unrelated to the nearby AOPA show in Hartford. 
Uh, it was a flight test aircraft. The A380 was on a three-stop tour, the first in Connecticut, where it made a low-level low pass over the Pratt & Whitney facilities at East Hartford and Middletown before landing at Bradley. The A380 is powered by engines from either Rolls-Royce or the Engine Alliance, and the Engine Alliance is a joint venture between Pratt & Whitney and General Electric. And then he comments, he says, I'll tell you that this giant aircraft is incredibly quiet. I kept waiting for the jet wine, and it really made more of a whisper. So this is from, uh, uh, he calls himself Max Flight, which Max for all Flight, I know yeah. may be his real name, but uh, that's what he calls himself. And is, uh, so like Max Headroom? Uh, something like that. But but it's a really interesting, if you're interested in aviation, you ought to be checking out uh, 30,000feet.com because he's got links. It's sort of a portal for uh, other aviation sites. He uh, has uh, links to all of the aviation podcasts and aviation blogs, and uh, I think there's a little bit of news there, and it's just a lot of interesting stuff. It's a good place to check from time to time if you're into aviation. And uh, I know we've seen visitors coming to our website from 30,000feet.com from the very earliest days of what we've been doing. So uh, we appreciate thinking, it. If you're going to spend any time back, at 30,000 feet, don't forget your pressure mask. That's right. Thinking back to the first crash of an Airbus A320, I don't know if doing a low pass in an A380 is the right thing for oh, them to be doing. That's funny. That's funny. You, yeah. me you remember that one, Dave? Not, yeah, not the one that plowed true. into the trees at the. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. It was doing a low pass at what, like an air, air show or something at, like that. At Toulouse, I thought, or something like that. It was, it was Some, a demo flight. It was a demo flight. It had uh, civilians on board, and um, they did a low pass. The, the captain pulled the power way back. And uh, when he went to power up, the software said, nope, we think you're in landing mode, so we're going to give you landing power or something like that. I thought uh, this, the story I always heard was that it just didn't spool up fast enough. And uh, Well, there's that. There, there, was, there was some trick with the software, too. The software was, was fighting back um, pitch attitude or power or something like that and couldn't couldn't get out of ground effect couldn't couldn't get the engine spooled up whatever and plowed into the trees yeah there's video out there of that it's it's there's, there's I mean, video out there it's tragic it's, but it's actually kind of graceful i mean this thing just kind of smoothly and, and, flew straight into the tree line and uh, yeah, and, and then at the end of it you see a bunch of of leaves and branches and stuff kind of fly up in the air the almost the prototypical cartoon yeah. uh like uh, uh event at the end of an accident it was tragic just several people died and uh, of course it was screwed up a great airplane or a good airplane well the, the uh, point of the demonstration that day was the new fly-by-wire system right because the a320 was the first civilian aircraft as well as the first airliner to uh, have a fly-by-wire control system and part of what was going on was showing how the computers could take care of any contingency and basically override the pilot if he tried to do something that would in the end, be stupid. And, uh, you know, I, I have a feeling, I always envisioned a conversation be between the three computers going, he wants to go up. No, he doesn't. Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> Let him go up. No, we should wait and see. No, I'm not sure. Hey, listen, and someone I, I else saying, yeah. so, someone else saying, sacre bleu. <laughs> Hey, I do computers every day. You think As you're joking. As opposed to that's, Sacre Bluet. That's probably very much the dialogue that went on on the wires there. Uh, we're running really long. We're having way too much fun today here. There's a couple of short items I was hoping we could get done before we uh, move on to uh, to uh, some serious drinking later on this evening, but uh, uh, not push them off till next week. Uh, Jeb, I think you were telling us about uh, some news out of the National Aviation Hall of Fame. 
Yes, I was. The uh, uh, Voice of America story, actually, uh, which I found kind of interesting that uh, we get this news from the Voice of America, but uh, um, the National Aviation Hall of Fame, five new members honored this year. Walter Boyne, he is former director of the National uh, uh, Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum. Uh, Evelyn Johnson, a uh, flight instructor, uh, completed more hours in flight and trained more pilots than any other woman in the world. Sally Ride, uh, uh, Fred Smith, and Steve Fawcett mm-hmm. uh, all were, were inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame this Let's year. Not forget Ed Lank. Yeah, well, um, and I'm I'm trying to to parse this story while we're talking about it. Um, the lead talks about these five uh, new members who were honored this year, and I think the rest of it talks about others who have been inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame. And and uh, here's some here's some blasts from the past. The, s- some of these names, uh, some of our, our listeners will know. Some of these names our listeners will not know. And Ed Link, L-I-N-K, is, is a name that uh, comes to mind. Anybody who uh, um, certainly uh, grew up in aviation in World War II and in the 50s era, uh, we'll, we'll know what a link trainer is. Mm. Uh, I saw one back in the 60s at, at, at the local airport, and they were probably in use as late as in the 1970s, but uh, um, really the, one of the first uh, complete ground-based simulators, and Ed Link is the guy who had kind of invented it. Um, uh, you know, when we were kids, Actually, it was incredibly Link. cool technology. Now you think about oh, it, yeah. it's like an incredibly clunky kind of thing. They, they actually, yeah. But it was actually kind of a f- quote-unquote full-motion simulator. It was like a exactly. little... Uh, I, I misspoke. Mr. Link wasn't added this year. He was added some years ago, but yeah, it was one yeah. of the names that they mentioned as being uh, possibly unfamiliar in today's environment. This year's uh-huh. inductives were, as Jeb was saying, Walter Boyne, Evelyn uh-huh. Brian Johnson... Sally Ride, Fred Smith. Fred Smith, for those of you that haven't been around for a while, invented, created, established FedEx. Something called something. This little, this little, uh, our cargo airline, nothing was ever going to become of it. It's called FedEx it, now. Right. It was a, a, a what, a C minus? He got a C minus on, in it, on in his, his business uh, class. MBA school or something like that. He, he described this, uh, this passenger, I mean, sorry, this Cargo Express airline, and his professor gave him a C minus on it, saying, this will never leave the ground. And uh, that same concept is now embodied as FedEx. And well, congratulations to those inductees, and uh, um, we'll put links to the both the article, the Voice of America article, which is actually a transcript from a radio interview. So we'll, we can link to the audio there too. And uh, and I was just looking at the website of the uh, National Aviation Hall of Fame to see whether or not it's, it, it must be associated with a museum, right? You can go there, and uh, I think it's in National. The National Aviation Hall of Fame is a, um, I believe, a separate entity. It's separate from the uh, Air Force Museum there in Dayton. Yeah. And it's completely separate from the Smithsonian. Right. Yeah. 
So that's great. Congratulations to those folks. Uh, another small story here. They're not turning out to be all that small, are they? Uh, Dave, the uh, Steve Brown is the new guy at. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I had to go look in here. I, I, it's still the Confederate Air Force to me, all right? But it's not the Confederate Air Force anymore. It's the. Uh, no, it's now. Commemorative. The Commemorative Air Force, and uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever met Steve Brown. What, what, do, you, what do you know about him? Was uh, met Steve when he was the vice president of marketing for the Experimental Aircraft Association. Uh, uh, I want to get this right. I think he came on board in 98 and was uh, one of the people responsible for creating a, uh, a, a brand image, if you will, for the Experimental Aircraft Association. Uh, sharp guy, uh, pilot, uh absolutely will be an energetic uh, representative of uh, the commemorative Air Force down in Midland, Texas. Uh, he was uh, appointed about the same weekend as their annual air show, uh, kind of their homecoming. Uh, those of you that aren't familiar with the commemorative Air Force, you can find the link commemorativeairforce.org. But it's essentially a uh, nation, well, international, actually, uh, museum uh, of World War II aircraft, mm -hmm. combat aircraft, training aircraft, that's supported by uh, uh, a, a network of local uh, wings around the country, uh, which take it on themselves to uh, support different aircraft by restoring them, flying them, and maintaining them to keep alive the memory of the, uh, uh, the people who served in World War II and the aircraft that they served in. And along those same lines, I want to uh, give a little shout-out to my local uh, commemorative Air Force wing, the Jayhawk wing, here in Wichita, which this past week celebrated its 20th anniversary as, a, uh, as, a, as an operating wing of the uh, commemorative Air Force. They operate two aircraft. I believe both are 1943. One of them is a uh, Fairchild PT-23 trainer. And the other is a uh, Cessna T-50 Bobcat in the uh, U.S. Air Army Air Corps designation and finish of UC-78. Uh, that's a twin, and trivia lovers, go back and check your old Sky King episodes because the T-50 Bamboo Bomber was what Sky King flew when the show first came on television that's in right. the early 1950s. And he, then he upgraded, only then did he upgrade to the Cessna 310. Right. When Cessna came out with a better twin, Sky King went to it so that he and Penny could uh, have a little more comfortable ride around the, the, the Southwest. And who so. says product placement is a new development? Huh? <laughs> so hats off to Steve. We wish you the best of luck in your new role. Uh, and, uh, you know, definitely one of the more worthy uh, causes in, in general aviation is the mission that the uh, uh, thousands of folks who belong to the CAF perform every week. Yeah, I'd second that. It's a great organization. You can hardly go to a, a, any kind of serious air, air show or fly-in around the country and not see at least a couple of uh, CAF aircraft on display. A great, great distributed collection and some amazingly passionate and dedicated volunteers and owners and Whatnot. Talented and skilled, also. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Right. You know. So, anyways, all right. Anything else you must say before we wrap this thing up? Get the fork. Okay. Stick it with the fork. Yeah. 
Learn more about Jeb and his work at uh, jebburnside.com, also aviationsafetymagazine.com and avweb.com, Dave at davehigdon.com, and myself at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. And you can check in with all of us at the uncontrolledairspace.com website. So once again, thank you everyone for joining us this evening in the virtual hangar, and we'll talk to you all again next time. Out of the clear blue of the western sky, come... An eye on a week. Gotta get drunk, man, so I can't even speak. Gonna get high, man, listen to me. One drink ain't enough, Jack, you better make it three. <laughs>